Good morning, everyone, and thank you for having us here and having me here. And since Daniel mentioned, uh, since I've known him all his life, um, if you want to know some of the secret behind the stuff, uh, feel free to contact me after, and I can let you know more about that, more about him. But uh, it's such an honor, especially to be here for Joel's uh, dedication and to celebrate with all of you, um, you know, new life and uh, his birth and and his life, and we're such joyed uh, to experience him as he grows up, and uh, we're so honored to be here. So. Uh, would you mind praying with me as we look to God's Word today? I know we're in a family series, and so we want to uh, explore more about that if you would join with me in prayer. Dear God, we thank you that we can come to you as our Father, and we as your sons and daughters, experiencing your Word and your truth in all of our lives. Speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. One day a man was visiting his friend on, who lived on a farm, and as he was driving towards the farm, he saw... Um, you know, on a barn, there were 20 targets. And on those 20 targets, there were 20 bullseyes. And he was marveled. He was shocked. How could that be? And he was just very, um, you know, taken back. And so 20 targets, 20 bullseyes, perfection in shooting, perfection in marksmanship. And so he was driving to his friend's house. He got, you know, he got to the front of the door. He knocked on the door, and his friend John answered. And he said, John, I passed by your barn, and I saw it. Markmanship I've never seen before. 20 targets, 20 bullseyes. And so he said, John, who, who did this? And John you know, said, I did. And he was just amazed. He said, where did you learn to shoot archery so uh, profoundly, so amazingly that you would have perfect markmanship? And then you know, he said, you know what I do is I first shoot, and then I paint the, uh, the target outside after. <laughs> You see, it's very easy to look like that we are on target when we just really know how to camouflage and paint really well. And so that ends up happening with a lot of us in our lives. And so this morning, I'd like to share about a life on target or a family on mission, a family that is on mission, on target. And we read that this morning in Psalm 128, and we looked at that psalm and as we, we all read it together. It's actually a psalm where we see it begins with an individual and it moves towards a collective in society. Now, we live in a very individualistic society and sometimes we forget that we are actually part of something bigger. Psalm 128 is that progression of a person's impact and growth from an individual to their family, to their city, to their nation, and as a world. And so Psalm 128 actually is known as a psalm of ascent. There's 15 psalms of ascent that was actually sung by individuals and families that journey to Jerusalem three times a year to celebrate the different seven different feasts. Uh, there's a picture of Jerusalem, and then there's another picture. Uh, some years back, I was there in Jerusalem and was able to visit the Temple Mount and or at the former site of where the temple, and you can see the staircase, and these were the exact staircase that the pilgrims would climb up and go into the temple to worship. This is on the southern steps. And so, in fact, these were how the families would travel to Jerusalem to be on mission. And that families would take their kids to see that they were part of something bigger. Bigger than their little town off in the countryside. Bigger than their village. Bigger than their city. They were part of something bigger that God was doing. And so let's walk together again from, as a family, as a church family in Psalm 128. I'm going to read it again, and we're going to look at it uh, 
in depth this morning. Psalm 128, it says, Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house, and your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Yes, this will be the blessing for the man who fears the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, and may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Now, I know when we talk about the family, we are all from different circumstances and backgrounds. Some of us may be single today. Some of us um, may be married without children. Some of us may be a single parent. Maybe we're a blended family. All of us here today can find ourselves in this psalm. Regardless of our state of life, we are all part of a family. Can you say amen today? Amen? We're part of a family. We're born into a family. We live as a family, and we're part of a church family here today. And so the journey begins with the individual in verses 1 and 2, and the blessing is pronounced on them. Now in scripture, the word blessing is the favor of God to you and the favor of God through you. We never experience the full blessing of God unless it passes through us. If we only get it to us, it can't flow through us, and we end up becoming a cul-de-sac when God wants us to be a conduit. And so the blessing of God should never just stop in us or with us, but it should flow through us. God told Abraham that I'm going to bless you and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 12, 2 and 3, it says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you to all the families of the earth will be blessed. So here's a little secret. Whatever you want God to do to you, Tell him how it'll flow through you. Let me tell that again. Whatever you want God to do for you, tell him how that will flow through you. Because God, whatever God wants to give us, he wants us to use that to be a blessing to others. And so that's what God intends for us because he knows that if it can flow through you, he won't mind passing it to you. He wants us to receive so that we can give. When our families are on mission and a blessing to others, we become a flow-through. When we are givers, God abundantly blesses us to those who give. So the blessing of God, as we see, is given to those who fear the Lord. It says, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. The first thing that's called upon for all of us is to fear God. Now, to fear God is to take God seriously. The fear of God is something that's not often talked about in our world today. The scripture actually talks about it 300 times. It's actually a very important topic. Some of you may know one of the most famous verses in the Bible is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. The beginning of wisdom. Because wise people fear God. However, some of us have grown up with a very negative connotation that obscures our view of God because we base it on the term fear of God. And so we've been taught to be scared of God and to fear God in such a negativity that we are scared to approach him. We're scared to connect with him because we think that if we do something wrong, that God is immediately there to hurt, harm, or punish our lives. And so what is the fear of God? Are we to be scared of God? No. It's actually a combination of two concepts. It's dread and tremble, and it's to hold in high esteem. So when you mix the two together, it's blessed or the favor of God to every individual who takes God seriously as opposed to those who take God casually. The fear of God is to those who take God seriously. Most people today take God very casually. We just 
use God to say grace or invocations or benedictions, and we go to churches and Sunday services and conference and seminars, we, which are all good, but it's very casual. We have a very casual relationship to God, but God blesses those who promise to take God seriously. Now, all of us have electricity in our home, right? We all use electricity. Electricity brings us great favor. We operate our lights, we operate our appliances, our technological devices, machinery, pretty much everything in our life, we use electricity because it grants us great favor. Now, what we don't do with electricity is we take pliers or a stick or something metal and we plug, we put it right into the socket, right? Why? Because we take it very seriously. We great, gain great favor and blessing from electricity, but we don't play with it because we take it very seriously. While we benefit from it, we don't play with it because we understand it's deadly serious. While we benefit from our relationship with God, we shouldn't play with our relationship with God because God's presence in our lives is one to be revered and honored and valued. Now, some happens quite often, but sometimes when you're driving on the highway, I don't know about you, but it happened just some time ago. I was driving on the highway and, you know, was going a little bit fast and... Um, suddenly a policeman was off-ramped right on the highway. And suddenly, as the policeman was getting close by, his presence greatly affected my driving because immediately my foot got off the, uh, the accelerator and suddenly hit the brakes a little bit. Now, as I was braking, I began to stare at my speedometer and realize I need to slow down. And then the policeman didn't do anything. The policeman then kept driving and went back off the next exit, and got off. But see, the policeman didn't do anything, but it, his presence greatly affected my decision-making. His presence greatly affected what I was doing. Three miles down the road, he was gone. And then I went back to my normal way out. <laughs> and no longer had to deal with his presence. But that's what happens sometimes with our relationship to God, is when we know he's there, it affects our our decision-making. And the moment we forget he's there, we go back to our normal way of life. But to fear God is to live in the light of his constant presence and to take him seriously. You see, if God can't get his own children, all of us, to fear him, how can we expect our culture and our world to take him seriously and change? Now, how do we know that we fear the Lord? It says there in verse 2, we walk in his ways. We fear the Lord with our feet, not with our feelings. We fear the Lord with our feet, not with our feelings. The fear of the Lord is re reflected in how we live and how we act and how we do things, not just how we feel. We may feel spiritual, but we may not actually live it. By the way, one of the ways we know we take God seriously is that we check with him first, not after, in the very last thing in our lives. He's our starting point and not our ending point. He is our starting point. We begin with him. Verse 3 gives us three blessings in verse, uh, sorry, verse 2 gives us three blessings. It says, when you eat the labor of your hands, you will be happy and it shall be well with you. And so you eat the fruit of our labor. We benefit from the productivity of our labor. And you see how God takes care of our fortune. He takes care of our feelings and he takes care of our future. It says, God will bless the labor of your hands, our fortune. He will also bless our feelings, says you will be happy, and he will bless our future, it will be well with you. 
And so God promises here in this verse that to those who fear the Lord, your fortune, your feelings, and your future, God will bless to those who fear him. And so now after take, talking about the individual, the psalmist now moves to the family. He begins in verse 3 talking about the spouse. And so here it talks about the wife, but you can take it, if you're the wife here today, your husband. Your spouse will be like a fruitful vine in your, the very heart of your house, and your children like olive plants around the table. The first group that should know that we are followers of Jesus are the people who live with us. And so here we read how if you fear and follow God, the psalmist says your spouse will be like a fruitful vine. You know how a, a vine grows? It takes three things for a vine to grow in a vineyard. First, a vine needs to cling to a post. They're usually tied to a post. I saw, I think there was a, uh, you're going to have a seminar on how uh, gardening. And so when you want to grow a vine, it needs to cling to a post. They don't drag on the ground they first need to cling to something. And then when it clings to that post, it starts to climb. And once it starts to climb, then it begins to cluster and it produces fruit. And this reveals the nature and purpose and product of a relationship between a husband and a wife. First they cling, they climb, and then they cluster. There's a purpose, a process, and a product in a relationship to understand that in relationships it's not just being ideal, that there is a process in our families. And sometimes that process is difficult. Sometimes that process is painful. But in that process, there is a purpose to our marriages, that it develops and produces fruit, something to enjoy. And so when we fear God and walk in his ways, we start to see changes happening in our home. Our spouses and our children start to see things happening. However, there is things that can hinder growth in the process and product of our family. I, I term it, I call it heat, H-E-A-T. And sometimes when there's a lot of heat to the fruit, it can wither. When you put too much heat or when the sun is scorching in a, on a plant or in, on a fruit, it starts to wither. And sometimes in our relationships, in our families, in our marriages, a lot of heat can cause a lot of pain and withering. And so that heat, I'd like to talk about four things. is hypocrisy, expectations, absence, and talk. Hypocrisy, one of the most damaging things to marriage and parenting is hypocrisy. When we live double lives, saying one thing and doing something else. The second is expectations. As you've heard or someone has said, expectation is the mother of resentment. We form resentment because we've created certain expectations in our lives and our families or with people in our lives that when they don't meet our expectation, resentment starts to form. And expectations are either formed through unconscious roles, roles that we assume our spouse should follow because we've seen that from somewhere else. Unconscious rules from our family of origin. When we've grown up, we've grown up with certain rules or ways we do things, and suddenly we expect our spouse to follow them, and when we don't, they disappoint and cause uh, resentment. And then there's the airbrushed mental image that we carry of our spouse or of our family or of our kids or of our parents. When they disappoint, it causes resentment. And so it's not only hypocrisy and expectation, but it's also absence. We live in a world that we are very busy. It's one thing that even my wife and I struggle with is being present, and particularly even for our kids, and being making sure that we're present and not absent from their lives. Because in our world, we get very busy. And the absence 
due to so many legitimate reasons, work or hobbies or things that we need to do, can also be very detrimental to the wealth and health of our families. And finally, talk, uh, uh, words that we say or the lack thereof that cause us hurt. When we get angry and frustrated, we say things that may be very hurtful to our spouse or to our kids or to our parents. And so we realize that heat, these four elements, can cause a fruit or a, a vine to wither. And so we have to be very careful to do as everything as possible to make sure that we make our homes a place where there's growth. Now, let me tell you something. Now, you may be doing everything right here today, and yet you don't see any changes happening in your family. Maybe there is an unsaved loved one that you're praying for, and there isn't change happening. Or maybe there's a child that you've been praying for that has uh, wandered away from God or wandered away from you and you don't have that relationship with them. Well, I want to encourage you not to give up because we operate on the currencies of grace, truth, and time. We operate on the currencies of grace, truth, and time. And we have to be patient, amen? That we have to understand that God has a time and a process as we do these things. And so you may hear the message today and say, wow, Nothing has changed in my life. I've tried to do everything right, but yet there hasn't been any change in my family. I want to encourage you. Be patient. Paul writes in Galatians 6, 9, let us not become weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Let's be patient in well-doing. Keep doing what you're doing right, and God in God's season and God's time will bring that back. We have to trust that God can change and God will change and that we should never give up. Because in our culture today, it's very easy to give up. It's very easy to walk away. I read a funny uh, story about a man who was on a plane one day and he had his wedding ring uh, on the wrong finger on the wrong hand. And the person beside him asked him, are, are you married? And he said, yes, I'm married. He said, you know, you have your wedding ring on the wrong finger on the wrong hand. And uh, the man replied, he said, no, 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 I married the wrong person. <laughs> and so it's very easy in our life to think and walk away when things may not be ideal and when things are not working to our expectations. Most of societal decay today is tied to the breakdown of the family. Because if the enemy can break down the family, he can break down our society. If the enemy can break down our family, he can break down our society. And so we see here the psalmist moves from the individual to the spouse, and now he moves to the children. He says there, your children will be like olive plants around your table. Not olive trees, but olive plants. Because it takes 15 years for olive plants to become olive trees. And if you nurture it right, the, olive, uh, the olives actually produce for over 2,000 years. There's a picture here in Israel when I was there, the Garden of Gethsemane, and you'll find uh, there that there are trees there that are over 2,000 years old producing olives because their roots run deep. Now, some of those olive trees were probably there during the time of Jesus, which is remarkable to think of, that when it's nurtured well and when it's growing well, it can produce well. And that's why here the psalmist talks about being an olive plant that can grow around the table and then can be sustainable for a very long time. You know, in Jewish culture, it talks about here, your children will be olive plants around your table. In Jewish culture, it was at the table that the parents raised their children. The table wasn't just for eating, but for leading. 
It was around the table that parents made sure that behavior was in order. Devotions took place. Schoolwork was done. Around the table. And we know in our world today, there's a lot of unique challenges in raising children. Kids between the ages of 6 and 23 fall into a generation or category considered post-millennial, Gen Z, or iGen. And how do we raise? It's, it's a new phenomenon. It's a new world that we raise kids in a, in a digital age. They are the most digitally connected and smartphone-addicted generation. And they, they were all grown up after the internet was commercialized, after 1995. And, and we see that they grew up with no pre-internet experience, understanding. You know, my kids, they, you know, they are starting to learn to use an iPad and phone, and they know how to do it. They have no idea that life, what life was before. On the way, uh, my wife bought a jacket for our son, and he said, Mommy, where did you get the jacket? He said, uh, said, my wife said online, and, and he said, oh, you got it from the computer? And so in his mind, the computer produces clothing. But that's all they can think of. That's all they, they understand. It's a, a very different generation. And so three qualities or three marks of a generation is they are smartphone natives. According to one study, the average age for a child getting their first smartphone in the U.S. is 10 years old. They're online always is the second. They spend more time um, online than in many other ways, and they're virtually never offline. And the third category or third characteristic is the generation has become very secular. About one in four do not attend any religious services or practice any form of spirituality. So what are the challenges in raising children in this generation? by far the most t- biggest takeaway from research that has been done is the spike in teen depression. Between 2012 and 2015, just in three years, depression among boys rose 21%, and depression among girls rose 50%. The suicide rates after declining in the 1990s and stabilizing in the 2000s uh, for teens has risen again 46%. Uh, more from 15 to 19-year-olds committed suicide in 2015 than in 2007. Two and a half times more from 12 to 14-year-olds ended up committing suicide. You see, someone once said, the paradox of the iGen generation, they have optimism and self-confidence online that covers a deep, vulnerable, and even depression and depressive life internally. A lot of confidence online But internally, a lot of hurt, depression, and insecurity. And you see, uh, one researcher said it is not an exaggeration to describe this generation as being on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades. Much of this deterioration can be traced back to the phones. And so this is the challenge that we as parents will have to navigate as families to navigate the potential challenges, to navigate as families and churches how to raise children in this generation. I was listening to a podcast some time back, and, I, and there was this very interesting um, talk about the word seen, and it gave five truths about this generation, both the blessing and the pitfalls that we have to navigate between. And so the word seen describes speed, convenience, entertainment, nurture, and entitlement. And these are the five characteristics of our generation today. Whether you're young or you're old, 
We all have these five characteristics or needs that we see in this generation. First is speed. Today in our world, we put a high value for speed. You want everything, fast food, fast this, fast that. We want things quickly, instant everything. And when something moves slowly, we think it's bad. We think it's bad when it moves slowly because we're so used to and crave speed. And so we become less patient. But how many know good marriages and good families and raising children actually happen slowly? Because we want things fast, we're not able to handle when things go slow. So the opposite of speed is slow, and we need our world, and we need to learn to understand that it's okay to be slow. It's okay for things to happen slowly in life. The second thing that we often crave is convenience. Today's world, we're full of convenience, and we actually may think that anything hard is bad. When it's hard, we assume it's bad. You know, one of the common phrases, if you're a teacher here, especially in K to 12, one of the common phrases that it's often said with kids is, this is too hard. This is too hard. We've been doing the same math equations for generations, but suddenly it's become too hard. Why is that? Why has it become too hard? It's because it's taking too long. Because it's taking too long. Because we want things to move easier, faster, quicker, and more exciting, which takes us to the next one, is entertainment. In a world that is immediate access to any entertainment, which is now at, at the palm of our hands, we actually think boring is bad. Anything that's boring is bad, and neuroscientists actually say that we need boredom. We need boredom, because it's in times of boredom that we have space in our minds to think, to be creative, and to form empathy. And so boredom is actually a good thing. And so whether you're young and you're old and you're feeling, wow, this, I'm bored today. It's not a bad thing because we've gotten so used that, that we want entertainment or we want something to keep us occupied. Boredom is actually good. The fourth is nurture. Today we've become so safety obsessed with helmets, pads, and belts that we take away any danger and we become overprotective, which could lead us to conclude that risk is bad. But you ask any entrepreneur, anyone who starts a small business or anyone who wants to run, that you need a level of risk to do something. And if we become so risk averse, we will never be able to succeed in life. And that's something that we have to learn and train our kids, not just to take risks, but calculated risks. Because risk is necessary for us to develop as a society and as people and as families to grow. And so we have to be understanding that nurture is good, but we also have to learn to understand how to take calculated risk. And then the fifth is entitlement. We grow up today feeling that we're entitled to perks and benefits, old or young, it doesn't matter our age, which could lead us to think that labor and hard work is something difficult and bad. And so the opposite of entitlement is that labor, that we have to start to understand that some things in life you and I have to work hard for. And not everything will be given to us just because we want it. So slow, hard, boring, risks, and labor are things that we also need in our development and characteristics to, to raise our children, to raise our families, to function in our society. There are a lot of challenges as parents in raising our children, but it's our responsibility to teach and train. There are three things we need to do. We need to teach, we need to train, and we need to give them time. We need to teach them, instruct them, and give them truth. We also need to train by living examples and giving them grace to embody that to our children. And we need to give them time to be present and to interact. 
How many have ever gone through an airport, and when you've gone through the airport, some airports, when you walk through with your belt or with some, your keys in, it doesn't beep, and you walk right through. And then you're at another airport, and they ask you, and you walk through, and your belt beeps, and your keys beep, and you're like, wow, how come that airport I could walk through, and the other airport I can't? And you wonder, and you're confused as to why. That's because the magnometers in there as you walk through the airports, have different levels of sensitivity, and different airports set those sensitivities differently. And so we have a generation of young people today whose consciences often don't beep because they haven't been set. And who sets those consciences? Who helps them? It's the job of the father and the mother to help set, train, and teach their consciences to set what is right and wrong. Because if not, everything will pass right through them, and they won't understand, and their consciences won't beep, and they won't understand what's good and what's bad, what's harmful, what's dangerous, what's necessary, and what's good. Because we see a lot of things a lot of crazy things happening in our society where a generation of young people didn't have someone at that table to set their consciences that was there present for them, that was there to help set the beepers of their minds and their conscience. And so as parents, I want to encourage you, if you're a parent here today, to take God seriously, to take him carefully, to Help our children to understand that he loves them and cares for them and wants to be a father, as we sang today, that we are his sons and his daughters. And no matter where we go, we can go to God our Father. How many can say amen today? Amen? That we can train our children to know that they have someone who can be dependable, who will never change, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And even if they stumble and fall, they can still go to him. And that is something that we need to help to realize that as families and as community, we can do this together. I'd like to just show a little demonstration this morning for you. And I have this um, big ream of paper here. And in this big ream of paper can be uh, for us symbolic of all the challenges that we face in life. We all face many challenges. And this single piece of paper can speak about our lives. Now, how many think I can put this piece of paper here and this can stand on top of it. Do you think so? You guys need a little bit more faith here. <laughs> right? Let's see if this, this happens. Right? This ream of paper, this single paper can take the weight of this. Oh. Nope, it can't. However, you see the challenges of this paper, it can't manage. And each individually, all of us, we can't manage carrying the weight of what we face in our world and society by ourselves. But you know, if I can take the same piece of paper and I can cut this paper into strips, and this is what fell, and I can roll them up into little circles here, and the same piece of paper that can't hold the weight of this, this ream of um, paper, As you can see right here, this now speaks about how we function as a family. We function as a community. We function as a church family. We need each other, amen? That we can't do it by ourselves. We can't live life by ourselves. We can't function by ourselves. And now this paper, this ream of paper, is able to stand on that weight. You see, this is what happens when we function together. This is what happens when we work together because we live in a very individualistic society that think that we can do it 
by ourselves. And then finally, we see now as we conclude and come, the psalmist now takes us to, he moves from the individual, moves to the family, and now he moves to the church. In Psalm 120, verse 5, it says, The Lord bless you out of Zion, and you may see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. The word Zion is a very lofty and biblical word. Uh, there is a mountain called Zion, the holy mountain of God. On the mountain of Zion, there is a city called Zion, the city of David, which is called Zion too. And on the mountain called Zion, on the city of Zion, there's a building called Zion, which is the temple of God. And here, God is talking about this place, this temple called Zion, where people would come. Why did the families, why did the fathers and the mothers take their children to Zion? To let them know that they're part of something bigger. Zion was the gathering of the covenanted people to let them know that they were not just their own individual families, but they were part of a collective, as we saw in the demonstration, that we live and function together as a collective. Hebrews 12, verses 22 and 23 says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. This heavenly Jerusalem to innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. You see, Zion was a gathering place of God's people, not just to get a song and a sermon, but to be empowered to go out into their world, into their communities to represent Christ. You see, Canada has a lot of embassies around the world. And these embassies are a little bit of Canada in another place, in another country from far away from home. And if you ever get in trouble, you can go to, when you're overseas, you can run and go right into the gate of the embassy, and you are actually living in Canada, under the laws of Canada, in that place, in that embassy, even though you're in another country. So do you know what the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be? A little bit of heaven on earth. The church of Jesus Christ is to be God's embassies where people who are struggling, who need help, who are broken and hurting can run and find comfort and healing and restoration. Why did Jesus pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? You see, God wanted Adam and Eve to expand the life of the kingdom, the garden throughout the entire earth, but they failed. But God gives us a taste of the life of his kingdom in our church community. And God wants to expand that life of his kingdom throughout the world. He wants us to expand that life to our schools and to our workplaces, to our, our culture, to our society, to our friends, where we value what new creation will look like that will resonate throughout the world. And God wants people to have a foretaste so that when they walk in and they experience the love of Jesus, the love and care of each of us in our communities, they will say, wow, this is a little bit of what heaven will be like. This is what healing looks like. This is what restoration looks like. This is what unity looks like. This is what hope looks like. Because our families and our churches are to be signposts that point people to what heaven is going to be like, what new creation is going to be like, what his kingdom on earth will be like. And then the psalmist comes to the city that you may see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. And then to the nation, he says, peace be upon Israel. How many believe our nation can be impacted for Jesus? Do you believe God can impact Canada? And that happens when we as individuals live on mission, when we in our marriages live on mission, when we as parents live on mission, when we as a collective church live on mission, 
And then as we live out that mission in our society, in our workplaces, in our lives, when people see, as Jesus said, by this will all people know that you are my disciples by the love you have one for another. You see, someone said the local church is the hope of the world. And for a church to be holy and functional and to live on purpose, we need healthy individuals and families to take God seriously. And then the psalmist ends and says, you may see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. You know, when we live changed lives, we can see God blessing our legacy. Amen? God will bless your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, and you, God will change the trajectory and the legacy that we have. And so would you join with me in prayer? I have here a little slide uh, with a prayer. And if you feel comfortable, if you would vocalize this prayer as we prepare to sing the song, The Blessing. And as God gives us his blessing, would you join with me in praying this prayer together? Lord Jesus, at Nazareth, you shared in the life of your family. Help us to live together in our family with love and respect for each other. May our home, a place of blessing, peace and joy for everyone. To the glory of God our Father. Amen.